Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. Fill our minds with your peace. Infuse our hearts with your love. And make our hands ready to serve for your name's sake. Amen. He could have died, you know. When Nathan walked into the king's presence like that and told his condemning parable, Nathan could have died on the spot. Like the king in Monty Python's Jabberwocky, David could have said, Guards, kill that man. To say, you are the man in the face of the king describing David's snatching the tender, loving lamb from Uriah's bosom, his wife, his wife Bathsheba. King David could have brought swift and instantaneous judgment on Nathan. You see, Nathan's telling of his story allowed King David's true nature and true intentions to reveal themselves. To have been able to pull off this parable of judgment like he did, Nathan had to be pretty fearless. He had to have complete trust in God, in the goodness and deliverance of God, despite the possible violent reaction of another human being. An uninvited, nameless woman who shows up at a party at the home of Simon the Pharisee to encounter Jesus to show her profound gratitude and thankfulness to God, to Jesus, she had to be pretty fearless too. Most likely, this was an all-male party, and the men there probably thought, rightly or wrongly, that a woman of her repute was a regular feature at parties of important men, if you get my drift. This party was at the home of a prominent religious leader, someone powerful among the people, her people, someone who could have had her removed or suffer a worse fate. And Jesus, he was rather fearless too. First of all, he was fearless in going to this dinner party in the first place. No mention is made of his disciples being with him, so we presume he was alone in the home of one of his sharpest critics. And then, a woman in the city, whom the text calls a sinner, which by implication might mean hooker, uh, approaches Jesus with an alabaster jar of costly ointment, a then common tool of the trade of the oldest profession, and she stands behind him. Other prophets or religious leaders both then and today, might have freaked out being seen with her or having it appear that she was there for him. But not Jesus. Jesus was fearless about the actions of others. He let people be themselves. His love for and calm acceptance toward others 
allowed the true nature and true attentions of other people to come forward. And that's exactly what happened in the home of Simon the Pharisee. I find it interesting that both Nathan the prophet and Jesus used storytelling to help reveal the true nature of the person to whom they spoke. Parables or stories of judgment sometimes invite a listener to unwittingly bring a verdict upon oneself. Their oppressing, demeaning, or or dominating nature being revealed clearly and cleverly by the story. When Nathan told his story to King David, he described the rich man with unbelievable holdings, extremely wealthy guy, in a rather flat, straightforward, matter-of-fact way. But he used tender, vivid, intimate language in describing the poor man and his little lamb that would lie in his bosom like a daughter to him. Because of this, we listeners are inclined to be sympathetic toward the poor neighbor and feel outraged toward the rich man taking from the poor man what did not belong to him and leaving him with nothing, just as David felt outraged. The story Jesus tells to Simon describes another rich man, one wealthy enough to make loans, someone perhaps like Simon himself, who may have once upon a time forgiven such debts, maybe even debts of the exact amount, that Jesus cites? Or perhaps Simon was once a debtor himself, and not of 50, but of 500 denarii, being the common amount for a day's wage that's over a year's salary. Our first instinct is to follow Luke's lead regarding the uninvited woman who sheds tears upon and kisses Jesus' feet, and upon whom Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of sins. But in fact, what actually happens between Jesus and Simon is as abrupt and shocking as the exchange of slaps in the face that take place in the greenhouse at the home of the man on the hill, between that man, a suspect in a murder, and Detective Virgil Tibbs in the movie In the Heat of the Night. You remember it? In first century Palestine, in a time of culture where hospitality was of great importance, Simon the Pharisee virtually slaps Jesus in the face by offering no kiss of greeting when he arrives, no water for his feet, no oil of perfume with which to freshen his head and body. Simon slaps Jesus with his thoughts about the woman and of him allowing her to touch and kiss his feet and letting her anoint him with her tears and costly perfume. And yet, Like Nathan in his story to David, Jesus allows Simon to spring a trap on himself about the judgment in his heart towards this woman who comes to Jesus, about Simon's incomprehensible breach of social and table manners in not sincerely and fully welcoming an invited guest to his table. And at this point in our text, there's a play on words here that we lose out on in English. And that is that the Aramaic word for debts in this story is the same word used for sins. Recall the parable Jesus tells. Two men owed money to a certain creditor. As they could not pay the creditor, the creditor showed mercy and compassion and canceled their debts. In the same way, Jesus canceled the sins, the debts of the woman, as she could not pay. 
Who of us can ever hope to pay God back for all that God has blessed us with? We cannot do it. Ever. So what does God do? Through Jesus, God cancels our debt. Jesus forgives our sins. He says as much to the woman at his feet, and the men around around Jesus wonder to themselves who Jesus is, or thinks he is, that he can presume to forgive someone their sins. And Jesus looks on this woman at his feet with her tears and her gift as a daughter of Jerusalem, one who recognizes in Jesus the God of love and compassion, who throughout the centuries has wooed and loved and pursued the house of Israel. But as we recall, Israel wanted a king on earth instead of God in heaven, and God who created our free will and more incredibly respects our free will, let them choose a king. Well, kings have a tendency to let power go to their head. Kings have great wealth. People have to do what kings say, and no one dares challenge them or off with their heads. If the king sees and wants something, who is to deny him? If the king wants another country, its land or its resources, he sends his army, and who will stop it? I like the way theologian Will Willimon compares the rich man in Nathan's story to King David. He writes, quote, The rich man, being powerful, decisive, has the freedom to act. Like King David, he sees, he takes, he consumes, end quote. He sees, he takes, he consumes. Sounds a lot like us in our culture, our shopping-based society, our consumption-based way of life, doesn't it? And how is that working out for us? How much joy does seeing and taking and consuming bring us? Actually, seeing and taking and consuming brings a lot of joy. (laughs) And it makes us feel good. That's why we do it. In fact, it feels so darn good that we can get addicted to it. But seeing and taking and consuming carries a price. And I don't mean merely an economic price. When we are so full of the stuff that we have seen and taken and consumed, there's not a lot of room left for anything else or, more importantly, anyone else. And we become spiritually fat maybe even smug. And one evening, we might find ourselves sitting at a table making judgments on those around us because we think we know everything we need to know when, in fact, we don't know. Because if we indeed knew, we would love, not judge. It is far, far easier to judge others than to love them because to judge We must come from a position of superiority, which feels so good. But to love others, to truly love, that comes from a position of servanthood, of being on our knees, which after a while can hurt. To love others requires being fearless, like Nathan was, like the woman in the city was like Jesus was. But in our 21st century, living in fear is so natural to us, it's like breathing. 
Fear is such a part of our lives that it's like a fish being in water and not knowing it's wet. We fear failure. We fear criticism. We fear the unknown. We fear strangers. We fear terrorism. We fear unexpected and irrational violence. We fear looking bad, weird, or presumptuous. We fear. We fear because we don't choose to love. We don't choose to embrace God's love. We don't love ourselves or we don't think God really loves us. And these last two are the most crippling forms of fear. How can we overcome our fear? By learning to love, truly love, as Jesus loved. In 1 John chapter 4, we find an aging, aging apostle John write, quote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love, end quote. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear in ourselves. It casts out fear in those whom we love. It casts out fear of others. When we love, we become fearless people. And one of the easiest ways to become loving is to realize that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are loved beyond belief. If we fully understood how much we are loved by God, loved by Jesus, it would alter the course of our lives. We would live a completely different way of life. Because we would be totally fearless. We would not fear others. We would not fear death. We would not fear the future or anything that could happen to us. Because we would be like that little lamb that was like a daughter to its owner. In love, God holds us so closely. So closely. We would know that everything would be alright because God loves us so much. And that really is the truth, you know. God loves you that much. I want to ask you a question. I, I am um, that one that I like to ask congregations from time to time. A question I want you to ponder this week, and it's your turn to get this question. And yes, I'm giving you homework. The question is this. What great work would you do for God if you knew that you couldn't possibly fail What would it be? What would you do? Because, friends, that is what Jesus is offering us. The ability to do a great thing in the eyes of God for someone who needs us to be Jesus for him, for her. What would you do for God if you knew you couldn't possibly fail? And in light of our reflection this morning, I want to ask you a second question question like unto it. What great work would you do for God if you had no fear? Because fear is what is likely keeping us from doing the great thing that God has created us to do. We fear. So what great thing would you do for God if you had no fear?
Jesus tells us that God loves us. God has canceled our debts, our sins. God wants us to live free of fear like the woman who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and perfume. I believe those tears are tears from an existential transformation in her. Tears that come from realizing that God truly loves her, truly forgives her, that God is truly for her and holds her close to his bosom like a daughter, like a son. Her tears are tears of joy and recognition. I am loved by God. And you know this. You learn this at an early age. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Yes. Jesus loves you. And more importantly, Jesus believes in you. Jesus wants you to live without fear so that you can do a great thing in his name without fail. For Jesus stands beside you, believing in you and loving you and supporting you all the way. What great work would you do for God if you had no fear? Trust Jesus to help you live without fear so that you can do a great thing in his name without fail.